Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This morning, as we continue our study in 2 Timothy, we're in verses 9 and 10. Last week, we heard Paul exhort Timothy at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me of his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Paul set before Timothy there the alternatives of cowardice and courage. He urged him not to run away from the difficulties of serving Jesus, but to lean into them by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask us this question as we come to the next part of the passage. What kind of God is this who calls an apostle to martyrdom, who calls a Timothy to suffer, who asks of each of us not to be ashamed of him or his gospel or his people in the face of scoffers and antagonists and opponents? I mean, what sort of God could be worth, let's just say on the mild end of antagonism, the headache of employers and colleagues frowning on you, or, or the heartache of, of beloved friends or family you know, running away from you because you believe in Jesus. What has this God done that would make suffering for him the sensible thing to do? Well, let me invite you to consider that here. We'll pick up the reading at verse 3. This is God's holy and inspired word. I thank God whom I serve, as I did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Amen. This is God's holy word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So with the knowledge that Paul is in prison and he's about to have his head cut off for the sake of Jesus, he passes the torch of ministry to Timothy. 
First, he encourages him. We heard him pray for him. He thanked God for him. He, he remembered warmly their loving friendship. We long, I long to be with you. He, he reminds him that God put sincere faith in his heart. And then having encouraged him, he exhorts him. Timothy, use your gifts. Don't shy away. Don't, don't pull back. Use your gifts uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Love people. Don't be, don't be ashamed of me. Embrace suffering for the gospel. He does all that. Suffering for who? Not for Paul. Timothy, I want you to suffer for God and the gospel. What sort of God? The God of the gospel. And so this morning, he, he unpacks that. He doesn't want to leave it with, well, you know, Timothy. I mean, you know what God we're talking about. We've talked about this a thousand times in our life together. You believe in him already. I don't need to tell you anything more. No, he, he unpacks the God he's talking about and the gospel of this God because we all need to be constantly reminded if we're going to be strengthened and buttressed to, to stand for him in a loving way uh, when we face suffering on his behalf and fears of being embarrassed. And so... Notice he speaks to the nature of what God has done for us in the gospel, verse 9, and the, the basis or the ground upon which uh, he did it, verses 9 and 10. On, on what is it built? And so those two things, first the nature of what God has done, verse 9. Well, pick it up at the end of verse 8. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, God that is who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So he's a twofold description of what God has done for all of his people. First, he has saved us, he says. The gospel tells us that God made us to enjoy a relationship of love and friendship, a, a relationship of a son or a daughter to a, a heavenly father. The reason we exist is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're made for. And yet the gospel reminds us that there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong and wrong with us. We're messed up, of course. The story of the Bible is the story of man's rebellion. We walked away. We went our own way. We said, no, I will not live as a son or a daughter under your roof, Father, but I will do what I want to do the way I want to do it. And, and so man rebelled and walked away and uh and and what has that brought it has brought it's brought ruin and misery right we all experience a taste of of that ruin and misery in our own experience conflict in our relationships with one another certainly i mean don't you experience conflict because of your self-absorption uh, your self-centeredness your self-righteousness and that of others it's not the way it was meant to be. There's, there's, there's fallenness here. There's, there's ruin here. We're creatures who are always looking out for ourselves ahead of the interests of others. That's what we are by nature. And so what has God done? He has gone on a rescue mission. It's the story of the gospel. And what does he do? He rescues us from the guilt of our sin because we've broken God's law. He rescues us from the power of sin, the, the sin that holds us in its grip and has dominion over us. He frees us, and he rescues us from the pollution of sin by which we are dirty, filthy, and need cleansing. 
And this rescue is what we have in Jesus. Jesus saves. It's a glorious good news of great joy, which is for all the people, and is to be embraced and not to be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of this, is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of uh, the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were, he says, by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is our natural condition apart from grace. But God, he says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God saves us from the penalty of sin. God saves us from the power of sin. God saves us from the pollution of sin. One day, God will completely save us from the presence of sin and we will be free of it all this is what he's done he reminds timothy god saved us but notice what else he did god called us to a holy calling he saved us from something and for something he didn't do the first without doing the second he doesn't save people without calling them to a holy calling the god who calls or saves you calls you to serve him In other words, Christianity isn't just, I mean, as some have put it crassly, it's not just life insurance or fire insurance for a future day. But uh, Christianity is a driver's license. It's a a permit. It, It doesn't just cover the expense of your accidents, so to speak. It puts you in the seat behind a wheel and says, go, 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 live for God, live a life that's set apart, a life that's different, a life that is not like the life you used to live when you were outside of Christ and grace. No, we're, we're, we're saved from and we're saved to a new kind of life. We've been called out of darkness and into light. He's delivered from us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, And in this, Titus, Paul in Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we await the appearing of our Savior. So we we have to consider Is this our own experience of the gospel? Do we understand what God saved us for? The two go together. They always go together. As uh, one pastor put it, that means holiness of life is not an additive. Sugar is added to tea. Salt is added to soup. You can have tea without sugar and you can have soup without salt. But you can't have salvation without 
calling into a new kind of life. And, and living in that calling is actually evidence, that fruit is evidence that you've genuinely been saved. So the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but live for him who died for them and rose again. And so I'm just asking, have you been compelled? Have you tasted the love of Christ in such a way that you have been nudged forward on the road of serving Jesus? Are you living for him? That's the question we have to ask because that's what God does when he saves people. Then, second, in the second place, and, and this is where we'll spend all the rest of our time, so many multiple subpoints. I won't tell you how many. Then notice, he says, the ground of the gospel, or the floor on which this salvation is built, right? The basis of it. Why did God save you and call you? Verse 9, not, end of verse, or end of verse 9, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, right? He's saying it's not by works, but as we just said, it is for works. God doesn't save you because you serve him, but he saves you unto serving him. But it's the serving that doesn't save. Jesus saves. And we always need reminding of this. I mean, the Apostle Paul knows this stuff. Inside and out. He, he talks about it all the time in his letters. Timothy, his disciple, has surely heard this again and again. Why remind him? Because Christians, even Christians like Timothy, certainly Christians like us, need to be reminded again and again. It is our, not our works that save us. And we're always tempted to think it's our good works that got us into the kingdom and therefore, it's our lousy works that will get us kicked out of the kingdom as if salvation on the front end is by works or on the back end is by works, our works. And that kind of mentality, when we fall into it, is, is what the devil and his allies, and some of them are preachers and false teachers, they're always telling you. On the one hand, they're always saying to you, you've got to be good. You need to be better or God doesn't want you, so get moving, work hard. And then the devil tells you that your hard works are lousy, they don't measure up to God's standard, and God doesn't want people like you. God doesn't want people like you on the front end until you start working hard for him, and you stink at that, so God doesn't want you on the back end either. This is the gospel of the devil, and sadly it's sometimes the so-called gospel you'll hear preached. And we have to be careful. We have to be reminded time and again. The Lord says, I know your works, right? And I know that they ought to be perfect as I am perfect if you want to dwell with me in perfection, but your works aren't holy and just and good like me. I know that. So because of my great love for you, so because of the mercy I will show you, what did I do? I sent my son for you. And his works will be perfect. His works will be all the works needed to get you out of hell and into heaven. His works will satisfy divine justice for your sins. 
His works will satisfy the divine requirements of the law to be your righteousness. All, all you'll contribute to your salvation, as others have put it, is the sin that makes it necessary. That's your contribution. The sin that makes it necessary. Jesus saves. Why? Not for works we've done. Why does he save them? Middle of verse 9. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And so we're invited to look away from ourselves to someone else. There's a reason, and it's not to be found in us, it's to be found in God. His purpose, His grace. So Paul will say in Ephesians 1, verse 11, In Him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Did you hear that language? Because of the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is why we're saved. It's sovereign grace. And when did he purpose this grace? Notice that language, end of verse 9. Before the ages began. He saved us because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. So that we could ask the question, how long have you loved me, Lord? And he says, I have loved you longer than you have loved me. I have loved you long before you were born. I loved you before I even created the world. So that if, as John Stott says, if we trace the river of salvation back to its source, We've got to look past or back beyond time to eternity past. I loved you before time began, and I planned and purposed to be gracious to you so that this grace is not only sovereign grace, but it is eternal grace. And Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of this. Don't be ashamed of this. It's the only grace there is, and it's really saving grace. Imagine a lady who comes to her pastor and says, I'm really confused about this business of God's sovereignty and salvation. Can you help me? The pastor says, I can try. So he asks her, are you saved? Yes, pastor, she says, thank God by grace, I know I am. Well, amen, he says the pastor. Did you save yourself or did the Lord save you? Well, pastor, she said, you, you know it was all of the Lord. So he said to her, did he do it on purpose or was it an accident? She says, I reckon it was on purpose. And he said, well, that's the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. He did it on purpose. Believing and embracing this view of the goodness and generosity and freedom of the grace of God, it doesn't bring pride as so many have spoken against it, it brings humility. And it brings humility because I've got nothing to offer for my salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. I could not save myself. He had to save me. 
But it is strong medicine, as Sinclair Ferguson says, for us to swallow. Some Christians find that the first taste of it seems bitter. For swallowing, it also means swallowing the pride that says, quote, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. But then he goes on to say, but once pride is dissolved by the absolute lordship and sovereignty of the one who can be trusted absolutely, the effects are wonderfully therapeutic. We begin to discover, or begin to recover from the sin sickness that gripped Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And at last we allow God to be God. And what does that do? It creates humility. And it creates gratitude. We don't deserve it, so we're thankful to Him. You believe this doctrine about salvation if you're a saved person. And how do I know? Because you thank God for your salvation. When it comes time for you to really pray, and if you think about being forgiven for your sins and bound for heaven, just at that level, you don't say, thank you, God, that I was smart enough for this. Or thank you, God, that I made the right decision here. Thank you, God, that I saved myself. Of course you don't. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. You say, thank you, God, that you had mercy on me. Thank you, God, that you were gracious to me. Thank you for saving me. Because you believe this about salvation. It creates humility. It, 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 it engenders gratitude. And it brings peace. This is a view of the gospel that quiets our fears, that calms our anxieties. Because there's nothing that can quiet your fears like your fears about the future, like knowing your safety depends ultimately not on yourself, but on God and His purpose and His grace, a grace that He has given you in Christ Jesus. And so notice this grace is in, he says, in Christ, verse 9, because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus, before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying God planned our salvation, and Christ appeared for our salvation. Salvation is found in Him. It's sovereign grace. It's eternal grace. It's Christ-focused grace. It's in Christ. He's the source of every spiritual blessing you can have from God. He mediates every one of them. There are no spiritual blessings from God found outside of Christ, but in Christ. This is actually Paul's favorite way to talk about Christians. He doesn't really throw the word, around, throw the word Christian around. He throws the expression in Christ around. People who are Christians are in Christ. They're joined to Christ. They're united to Christ. And so what, what belongs to him has become ours. So that while there was a time when we were once in Adam, belonging to the old fallen humanity, with Adam as the head of the human race, now we're in Christ, belonging to the new redeemed humanity, with Christ as the head of the family of God. So as one illustrated it, and I've told this to you before, imagine two giant wrestlers, massive wrestlers. They're as big as Mount Everest, and they're wearing belts around their waists, and one of the wrestler's belt says Adam, and the other wrestler's belt says Christ. And they have hooks in these belts, and all of us are hooked onto a belt. 
And by nature, we are all hooked onto the belt of Adam. But by grace, we are unhooked and hooked onto the belt of Christ. So that wherever Adam the wrestler goes, he takes his people with him because they're joined to him. And likewise, wherever the wrestler Christ goes, he takes his people with him because we're joined to him. Where did Adam go? He went to a tree of testing and he failed the test. He ate the forbidden fruit. He rebelled against God's rule over him. And so the process of decay and death began. He was banished from communion and friendship in the presence of his father who walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And he faced the prospect of eternity without the enjoyment of God. And so too for all who are hooked into Adam. But where did Christ go? Christ passed the test. He perfectly obeyed the Heavenly Father. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Then He rose from the dead and He mediates every spiritual blessing from God to us so that in Him we have pardon, access to God, communion with God, restored friendship and fellowship with God, and the promise of everlasting enjoyment with God. Because all that He has is ours. By grace. So it's sovereign grace, it's eternal grace, it's Christ-centered grace, and it is finally liberating grace. Notice this last phrase. Notice what Christ did. Grace is in Christ, verse 10. <clears throat> Christ, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What did Jesus do? He abolished death. Death is the misery we are all liable to. Death is what God promised Adam in the garden when he said to him, you may surely eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Adam ate and he brought death into the world for the wages of sin is death. What sort of death did he bring into the world? We can think of death three ways and we need to appreciate this in order to understand how Jesus has abolished death. What are the three ways to, to think of death? There's, there's physical death, of course. There's the separation of the body or the soul from the body. But there's spiritual death, too. It's the separation of the soul from friendship and communion under the blessing of God. And then there's eternal death, which is the consequence of spiritual death if it's not uh, taken from us and life given to us and it's the separation of body and soul from the comfortable enjoyable presence of God forever it's the separation and so when we ask the question what does he mean by he, Jesus abolished death and how can we say that when believers experience physical death in this life and we know that unbelievers are still in spiritual death. They're spiritually dead without the grace of Christ. So what does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean that Christ eliminated these things. But he rendered death ineffective and powerless over all who trust in him. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will compare 
death to two things. What does he compare them to? Remember he says, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? And so what is he saying? He's, he's likening death to a scorpion whose sting has been drawn out. It can't sting us. And he likens death to a military commander who has received his one decisive defeat. So this is what has happened. It's like a scorpion whose sting has been taken away. It's like a military commander has received a, a decisive defeat. So we say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Well, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So what is it that's happened then? Well, it is this, that physical death for believers in Jesus is no longer the wages of sin. And we can say that because the wages of sin is death, but the payment of sin has been rendered on our behalf by Christ who died for us. So that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the death of a believer cannot be the punishment of our sin because Christ was punished for us. So that believers need not fear physical death. It has lost its sting. Now, I mean, to be sure, there are ways of dying that I would guess none of us want to experience, right? None of us probably would want to ever be eaten by a crocodile, however long that takes. I think a lot of us would say, well, I'd, I'd kind of like to go in my sleep, you know, and just pass from here into the presence of Jesus. But we... You know, while there are unpleasant things about the experience of dying, we need not fear the death itself, the Bible says, because our soul goes immediately to be with Christ and our body rests in the grave until the resurrection. So that death has been transformed. For those who are in Christ, it's been transformed into the event by which God, in love to us, takes us out of a world of sin and misery and into a world of righteousness and joy. What else did Christ do? Not only did he abolish death, but, end of verse 10, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So that in Christ he has brought life, and by this he means spiritual life, at minimum, spiritual life in place of spiritual death. We have been, the scripture says, made alive in Christ, made alive with Christ, and restored by Christ then to friendship with God, having access to God, with the possibility of communion with God, to know the love of God and have hopes in God. And, and he relates to us. He speaks to us in his word. He listens to our prayers. He reassures us of his love. He walks with us in life. We have spiritual life, not spiritual death. But we also have eternal life, not eternal death. He brought, he says, life and immortality to light. The word incorruptibility to light. We will be immortal with a soul made perfect forever, reunited to a body that is whole and healthy, a resurrected body to be sure, but a body that cannot see decay, a body that will not taste corruption, so that this will go on forever. 
so that Revelation can say in his presence there will be no crying, no more pain, no more hunger, no more thirst, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd and he will lead us to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is the eternal life held out to us in Christ. So Paul can say, and as we close, I want you to think about, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We are all by nature in Adam, participants in the fall. We are by nature in Adam, and we are only by the free gift of God's grace in Christ. This grace that is sovereign, eternal, and liberating. So the question is, are you in Christ? If not, put your hopes in His works and not in your own. Put your hope in Him and not in yourself. And if you are in Christ, then I would say and urge you, don't be ashamed of such a gloriously good gospel and the Savior of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. We need him. You know our iniquities, perversions, self-absorption, transgression, rebellion. And I would ask that you would cleanse us from it all. And for those who don't know the joy of forgiveness, grant it to them even now as they look to Jesus to save them. And we pray that you would strengthen the backs of believers to not be ashamed of you, but then to love our neighbors and to speak up and to share the good news. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.